This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles now to Esther chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of Esther, I just want to begin by taking a moment to remind you that this book is focused on the incredible faith that led a young Jewish woman named Esther to risk her own life for the sake of her kinsmen who were, at that point in time, living under the rule of the Persian Empire. And while Esther is the central figure of this book, it's also important to recognize the role of her adoptive father, Mordecai. I'll remind you that Mordecai was the man who informed Esther about the man who was plotting against the people of God. And Mordecai was also the man that God used to encourage Esther so that she might recognize the real reason for why God providentially placed her in the position of queen there in Persia. And let's not forget that Mordecai was also the man of faith who refused to bow a knee before an anti-Semite Amalekite named Haman. Now with that, it'll help you to remember that Haman was the man that King Ahasuerus promoted to become his right-hand man. And, you know, with that, uh, you know, the, the king, he uh, actually commanded all the people, after raising Haman up, he commanded all of the people there in Shushan to bow down before Haman. And, and at the same time, you know, while everybody was bowing down, well, Mordecai, Esther's adoptive father, she refused to obey this, or he refused to obey this executive order. And with that being the case, you know, Haman, well, he came up with this plan to punish Mordecai, but it wasn't enough to just punish, punish Mordecai. Uh, he was actually determined to exterminate every Israelite living within the Persian Empire. After receiving permission from the king, which permitted the people of Persia to purge the Israelites from their land, Haman's wife encouraged him uh, to make an example of Mordecai by hanging him from the largest gallows ever built there in Persia. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Haman. He's making his way to the king's palace so that he could encourage the king to go ahead and hang Mordecai from the gallows that he had just constructed. Uh, unfortunately for him, what Haman was failing to realize is that there is a God in heaven. He was failing to realize that there is a God in heaven who is able to protect his people according to his perfect will. With all this in mind, I want to turn our attention now back to this historic account that we find here in the book of Esther. If you would, let's, turn to, uh, let's, let's begin reading here at Esther chapter 6. Uh, and I want to begin reading at verse 1 because here we read that uh, it was that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles and they were read before the king. Now here in the first verse of this chapter, we find King Ahasuerus, he's struggling to sleep. And rather than tossing and turning all night, he instead sends for a servant who would come and read to him a boring bedtime story from the historical chronicles there in Persia. And I have no doubt that this wasn't the first time that he had used the historic records there in Persia to put him to sleep. Now, the chances are uh, there are some here tonight who struggle with the sleeplessness of insomnia. And listen, if this is true of you, then you might be prone to reach for the sleep aids like NyQuil or Ambien. Uh, please allow me to suggest that the king of Persia actually had a really good solution here for his sleeplessness. And the reason I say this is because nothing will put you to sleep faster than a few paragraphs from a history book. 
You know, just, just grab a history book, start reading, you'll be asleep in no time. Rather than reaching for the sleep age, you might try reading first and second chronicles. That, those are, you know, fun to read. And, and, and listen, those who are, uh, you know, uh, those who are struggling to sleep, you, you might take the advice of some of the people that I've heard here in the church. I'm not saying who it is, but, but some people have suggested that when they struggle to sleep, they just start playing one of my messages and right to bed, just right to bed. Some of you guys are already asleep tonight, but what works for me though personally is to start praying. I just start praying. And as I, as I'm praying, it's like the peace of God just fills my heart. The peace of God just fills my mind. And the next thing you know, I'm the sheriff of ice cream city and, and I'm rounding up all the, all the broccoli boys in order to put them in prison before the broccoli gets into the ice cream and whatnot. And, and, then, and then next thing you know, it's time to wake up. All right. Seriously, though, if you're struggling to sleep, then I encourage you to consider what King David wrote in the fourth Psalm. It's verse eight where he declares, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. Why? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I love that. King David was able to lie down and sleep with great peace because he knew that the, the king of kings is on the throne. The Lord alone is the one who can provide us with the perfect peace which enables us to enjoy a good night of sleep. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 11. It's there where he declares, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more work to do. No, that's, that's not what it says. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Christian, listen, if you can't sleep at night, spend some time with Jesus. And as we spend time with Jesus, whether we're praying or reading his word or a little bit of both, he promises to give us the rest that we need. At the same time, it's also important to realize that our insomnia might be God's way of getting our attention. And I think that's what's happening here in our text tonight. I think God wanted to get the king's attention here. And so, you know, he did whatever he did, does to, to wake him up and, and get him to start paying attention. And to make my case, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 2. Here we learn that it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now here in this verse, we find the, the servant uh, of King Ahasuerus who was reading from this recent record. He's recounting the day when Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai, he had learned about the plot of these two eunuchs who, who were hatching this assassination plan to kill the king. And so, you know, he's recounting this recent uh, event, and, and I'll remind you, we actually read about this back in Esther chapter 2, it's verses 22 and 23, where we learn about the day when the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, and when an inquiry was made uh, into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, 
you know, that was back in chapter two. Now here in our text tonight, we find this sleepless king being reminded about this matter as his servant was reading from the most recent records written there in the Persian Chronicles. And while that servant probably decided just to grab the most recent scroll available, there's no doubt in my mind that the providential hand of God was orchestrating that very situation. In order to explain what I mean, I must first insist that I believe in the free will of every human being. I believe that we have free will. And this is not to suggest that every person has the free will to do what is impossible. You know, a person can't simply choose to flap their wings and start flying. You know, nor can a person choose to change their gender. We can't make a square circle. You know, and, and, and we can't ever, you know, go beyond the limitations, the natural limitations that God has ordained for this universe. But apart from doing the impossible, we do have the freedom to make decisions regardless of whether they're rational and moral or irrational and immoral. At the same time, though, we must not fail uh, to, uh, to notice that God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And with that being the case, he's able to create the conditions by which we experience anything like a sleepless night. Yeah, God can do that. He's able to create circumstances you know, you know, by which you know, we uh, end up looking to him or looking for solutions. He's able to create circumstances and situations that might lead us to make a decision which uh, in our minds is more reasonable and rational, and yet still according to his perfect plan. I like the way that, the King, uh, that King Solomon uh, put this in Proverbs chapter 21. It's verse 1 where he declares, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, I don't think that Solomon here is making a case for hard determinism, which is that, you know, God forces us to make the decisions that we make. Listen, if God forces us to make the decisions that we make, then we've never made a bad decision because they've, they've all been God's decisions. If we've been hard determined to make any decision that God makes us make, then all of our decisions were God's decisions and none of them were sinful. I can assure you that is not true of my life, nor is it true of yours. So those who, you know, lean towards this hard deterministic idea of, you know, God moves us around like chess pieces. I don't think that's what Solomon is saying here at all. But the Lord is the king of kings, and he's able to guide the nations of men as he creates circumstances that directs the decisions of everyone from, you know, kings to kids, and so while it's true that we have the freedom to make free will decisions, it's also true that the Lord is the creator who's able to control the conditions within his creation. And in this way, God remains sovereign while simultaneously allowing for our uh, small amount of autonomy. But that being the case, the best thing that we can do with our small amount of autonomy is to submit our liberty to the spirit of the living God. We've been given free will, and the best thing that we can do with it is say, I'm going to take my free will and submit to God. I like the way that Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 5. It's there where he declares, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
For the flesh, flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Christian, listen, the depraved desires of our fallen flesh are completely contrary to the perfect will of God. And knowing that we have freedom of choice, the best thing that we can do is follow the the counsel here by freely choosing to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul encourages us to submit our lives to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as we submit our lives to the leading of the Holy Spirit, he will help us to make the rest of the decisions that are actually in line with the will of God. As we submit our liberty to the leading of the Lord, we can rejoice in knowing that our God is able to guide the governments of every nation that that is over us as he sovereignly sets up scenarios like the one that we find here in our text tonight. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 6. Here we find the king responding to the record uh, which was written about Mordecai. If you would look with me there at verse 3, here we learn that the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now here in this verse, we learn about the way that King Azurus uh, was moved uh, to have this desire now to honor Mordecai. And as we consider all of the moving parts that led up to this very moment, well, there should be no doubt in our minds that our God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. Think about it just for a moment here. Mordecai had to be in the right place at the right time to be the guy who overheard the plot of those two eunuchs. That alone is very incredible. Not only that, but he also had to then share this intel with the right servant who would actually go in and inform his adopted daughter. He didn't have just direct access to her anymore. And so he had to find someone who was not part of the plot. You know, how how did he do that? Well, I'm guessing that God was guiding Let's not forget about the events that led up to Esther becoming the queen of Persia. You know, the the very fact that God providentially placed Esther into this position is pretty incredible. And then we also have to factor in the insomnia of the king, as well as the decision of the certain servant who decided to grab a certain scroll and read about this recent event. Without debate, there were many individual decisions that led up to this specific night when the king determined that he needed to bless Mordecai because his honor had been overlooked. And as we consider all of the factors which were in play here, there should be no doubt that we're not just talking about a series of coincidences. It's been said that the word coincidence is not kosher. And if you think that this is just a a series of happy accidents then you don't really understand how a sovereign God orchestrates the events happening here in this world. There should be no doubt as we consider all of this that our God is able to take the things that happen here in this world and he's able to use them to accomplish his perfect plan. In order to further prove my point, let's consider how the Lord used this situation to then challenge the hatred that was in Haman's heart. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 6. I want to draw your attention to verse 4. Here we learn that the king said, who is in the court? 
Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. Now here in these verses, we learn about the, the way that Haman had come to the palace in order to ask King Ahasuerus for permission to go ahead and uh, hang Mordecai on the very next day. And what he didn't realize was that the king had just decided that he was going to bless Mordecai for the way that Mordecai had exposed the assassination plot of the eunuchs. And, and, and as we consider the incredible timing of these events, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord was not only orchestrating a blessing for his faithful servant Mordecai, but the Lord was simultaneously using this very situation to help Haman to see that his hatred of Mordecai was entirely unjustified. In order to further explain my point here, let's continue to consider the way that the providential hand of God was setting the stage for Haman's correction. Let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 6. I want to begin reading at verse 6 because here we learn that Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the, one, the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Here in these verses, we find the king of Persia. He's inviting Haman to help him to determine the very best way to honor the man who has found favor in the sight of the king. And while I'm sure we all realize that the king was actually referring to Mordecai, well, Haman was so self-centered, he was so narcissistic that, that all he could imagine was that he was the man. He was certain that he was the one who was about to receive this incredible honor. With that being the case, Haman was happy to call for a royal robe and a horse with a kingly crest and to be toured through the city square. That's right. He wanted all the people of Shushan to see him receiving this special honor from the king. And I can only imagine how he was hoping that Mordecai would see him being honored in this way. If so, if this was what he was imagining in his mind, then his daydream quickly became a waking nightmare as the king continued to present him with his plan. And with this as the focus, let's consider the king's command found here in Esther chapter 6. Look with me there beginning at verse 10 because here we learn that the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Wow. Here we find the king commanding Haman to go and bless the man that Haman hated with his whole heart. And as we consider the way that Haman was ordered to honor Mordecai in this way, we must not fail to consider how the Lord was not only honoring his faithful servant Mordecai, 
But I believe that he was simultaneously helping Haman to recognize and repent of his unjustified hatred. Think about it. Haman went to the palace in order to ask King Ahasuerus for permission to execute Mordecai. But then after arriving, he not only helped the king to identify the best way to honor Mordecai, but then he was ordered then to go and parade Mordecai, this man that he hated, around the the town square of the citadel there in Shushan. In this way, the Lord was helping Haman to see that he was wrong about Mordecai. That Mordecai was a decent dude who, you know, helped save the king's life. And and this was also Haman's opportunity to repent of this murderous plot, not only to hang Mordecai the next morning, but also to, to purge all the Israelites from the empire of Persia. Christian, listen, the Lord gives every unbeliever the opportunity to recognize their sin so that they might repent. Is Haman the villain of the story here? Of course he is. And yet the Lord was giving him an opportunity to recognize his sin so that he might repent of it. I can't help but to think of what the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3. There he declares, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In light of these verses, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord wants every sinner to repent. The reason why is because the day of the Lord will eventually culminate in the everlasting punishment of those who freely choose to reject the grace of God which is received by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. And while it's true that the Lord doesn't desire for anyone to perish in the lake of fire, it's also true that he's you know, sovereignly intervening in the affairs of mankind as he sets out to create the conditions that might convince unrepentant sinners to repent. I like the way that Paul put it in Acts chapter 17. It's there where he declares God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And notice, he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In other words, God has sovereignly placed every person in the right time, at the right place, in order to give every single person the very best opportunity to use our free will to seek him and find him so that sinners might be saved from the day of wrath. God has given every single person the very best opportunity. And, and there's those who say, well, what about the person on the, on the deserted island? 
whoever that person is. Well, according to the word of God, God put them there as a, as a pre-appointed place in time and boundary to give them the best opportunity to seek the Lord. How does that work? I don't know. I'm not God. I don't have to figure it out. I just have to believe what he told us. That he is pre-appointed, that he is predetermined our pre-appointed times and boundaries of our dwelling so that we should seek the Lord. What that tells me is that God has sovereignly placed each person in, a, in the proper time, at the appointed time, at the, at, the, at the appointed place, because this would give every single person the very best opportunity to seek the Lord and be saved. It's incredible. This was true for Pharaoh, who, after suffering through 10 plagues, you know, all the way through, decided to harden his heart against the Lord until the Lord was confirming you know, that hardness of heart. You know, Pharaoh had the chance to repent, but he didn't. But then this was also true for Nebuchadnezzar, you know, who was put out to pasture for a a few years. And in the process of that time, repented of his sins. Both were given the same opportunity to repent. One did and the other didn't. Every person, no matter where they're born and regardless of the age that they live in, every single person has been given the best opportunity to repent of their sins and to trust in the Lord. That being the case, it's sad to say that there are so many who freely make the choice to reject the redemption of our Redeemer. But this has the focus. I want to consider the final word of warning given to Haman, which is found here in our text tonight. If you would, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 6. I want to begin reading at verse 12, because here we read, Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Haman, he's hurrying home after being humiliated there in the city square of Shushan. And after sharing this story with his wife about what had happened there with Haman, you know, she ended up sharing this word of warning, which I believe is a word from God, and, and she informs him about the way that this turn of events would result in his downfall. I do believe that this was a word of warning, which gave Haman the opportunity to repent. This was the writing on the wall. And, the, and while this would have been a perfect time for him to repent, Haman was too busy feeling sorry for himself after suffering such a great humiliation before all the people of Shushan. And, and while it's true that he covered his head in grief as he you know, grieved over his humiliation, it's also true that his self-centered sorrow was far from being heartfelt repentance. You see, self-centered sorrow and heartfelt repentance are two entirely different things. Now, just to be clear, heartfelt repentance, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind that brings forth fruits 
of the repentance. For example, you know, if Haman really recognized his sins, then he would have wanted to reconcile with Mordecai. If he was really repentant, then he would have called off the purge that he helped to orchestrate. But none of that was a concern to him. Instead, he was simply grieving over the fact that the man he hated most had been honored with the accolades that he wanted for himself. He was grieving over the fact that the king had honored Mordecai more than him. This is not repentance. Christian, listen, real repentance is a change of mind which will produce the fruit of a changed life. I like the way that John the Baptist put it in Matthew chapter 3. There he sees a group of religious leaders coming out to his baptism, and he rebuked them. He didn't welcome them. He rebuked them. And he did this by declaring, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Man, I don't think John the Baptist understands how revivals work. You just got to bring them all in and hope they praise their, you know, their way into Jesus. You know? and no, he rebukes them. Calls them a brood of vipers and tells them that they're not here to repent. And he tells them to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Remember, repentance is a change of mind that produces fruits that are seen in a changed life. And with that being the case, those who repent and trust in Christ Jesus, well, we begin to bear the fruits of repentance as our life becomes more and more and more like our Messiah. With this as the goal, I should take a moment to remind you that you know, those who truly repent and trust in Jesus Christ receive the indwelling Spirit of God. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a decision that we have to make every day, And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than in the lusts of our flesh, that's when we begin to bear the spiritual fruits of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of true righteousness. And as we bear these fruits of righteousness, which again include love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, That's when we begin to learn how to rest in the knowledge that our Savior is the King of Kings. Do you know how to rest in the knowledge that Jesus is on the throne? Christ Jesus is the King of Kings and therefore he is ruling over heaven and earth. And there are times when the Hamans of this world are, are trying to persecute us and trying to, you know, uh, you know, kill us, trying to destroy our lives. And, and as Christians, we're like, oh my, oh my gosh, there's a bad person in the world that's trying to hurt me. Who could ever help me? Nobody. Nobody can help me. And so let me just live in fear. Let me just have a heart filled with anxiety. I can't sleep at night. I'm all worried about everything. My boss is a jerk. 
You know, my, my, my roommate is horrible. You know, my, my coworkers are picking on me and, and, and there's nothing I can do about anything. Really? There's not a, there's not a God in heaven. There's not a, a king on the throne. Do you not believe that we have a king over all the kings of this earth? Yeah, but Biden's really messed up the economy. And, and maybe, maybe this is what God is directing. Maybe this is the, the beginnings of God's punishment on America. Maybe. I don't know. Do I have to worry about it? No, I don't. Because the king of kings is able to direct the hearts of the rulers of this earth. He's the Lord of lords, and what this means is that he's able to protect us from the Hamans of this world. And, and listen, those who will not repent, those who will not you know, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and seek forgiveness, well, they're going to be dealt with, aren't they? Do I have to go deal with them? No. The Lord will deal with them. I like the way that the Apostle Peter put it in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's verse 9 where he declares, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Christian, listen, rather than getting all stressed out by the trials and the troubles of this world, let's remember our Savior is the sovereign ruler of this world. He is actually on the throne. That being the case, we don't have to fear the Hamans of this world, no matter what they are. Instead of fearing the unrighteous rulers of this world, let's follow in the footsteps of Mordecai by humbly submitting our lives to the sovereign authority of our king. Is there something happening in your life that you don't like? It might be God trying to get you to repent. It might be God trying to redirect your life in one direction or another. Rather than kicking against the goads and rather than trying to, you know, make something else happen, why not just kind of just submit to God and walk by faith with him? Let's humbly trust that we have a sovereign king who wants to guide us into all truth. If we'll, if we'll let him. And, and as we submit to his will, we'll discover that there are so few things. There's, so, there's, there's, just, there's, there's really not a whole lot of things that we need to resist in this world. That we need to resist our flesh. Our fallen flesh keeps wanting to bring us back to a life of sin. We need to resist that. But as far as trying to control all the things around us, it's a fool's errand. Because how do you know that God's not working these things out for the good of those who love him? I'm going to assume that he is. Let's simply humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And as we do, we can rejoice in knowing that he's going to exalt us in due time. Until that day comes, I encourage you, cast all your cares upon him, knowing that Christ Jesus cares for us. Let's pray.